0: Okay, so tonight we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And we come back to Solomon and his dedication of the temple. It's been awesome. It's just been awesome. And we saw they brought the ark in and the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord filled the sanctuary as they did so. So he built the temple. We know he took about four and a half years to get all the supplies together. It took over seven to build it. So it's been a 10 to 12 year project. It was the vision of his dad, David. And now it's done. And as we read last week, three, four, and five, this week, chapter six, and even next week, it's all really the same event. So it's spread out. And we did three chapters last week, but this week we're only doing one chapter because it's the prayer of Solomon at the dedication. And uh, we're going to break it down. So we start here in verse 1 of chapter 6. The presence of the Lord had filled the temple. The priests had come out of the holy place. And now Solomon is addressing the assembly of all the people. So it says, Solomon spoke. And the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled by his hand what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying that since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple, For the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I fulfilled the position of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I've built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. So there's is essentially Solomon's opening statement to the multitude on this incredible once in a human. I said last week that it's once in a lifetime. Like, no, it's not really once in a lifetime. It's once in a century. Actually, it's not. Once in a millennium and 6,000 years, it's not. It happens once in human history where you get a day like this, where the presence of the Lord came and filled the temple. This only happens like if you're alive in your generation and you saw it. And we talked about that last week. And so in this grand event, Solomon, this great king who built it, he did it. The people in Jerusalem had watched it all being built for 11 years. The supplies being brought in up from the Mediterranean, the wood, the, the gold, and the all those inner court things coming in from from the plain of Jordan, and, and Hiram going back and forth in his chariot, or however he got around, and all the people, tens of thousands of workers, and, and here it is. This is that day, and everybody's there. I mean, every, pretty much everybody's there. And now he gets up, and he's the leader. He's the spiritual leader. He's the political leader. He is their king, and he's a successive king because he's the third king, But God rejected Saul and his family, so God chose David, but now he's a succession of the reign of David, which he's the first of many coming from the line of David there, obviously. As you know, the Old Testament, uh, how the history goes. So here in this grand moment, this is one of the greatest moments in Israel history, he recounts, he begins this event with undivided attention of everybody. He recounts his dad, David. He recounts how God had chosen Jerusalem to be their capital. He had chosen his dad, David, to be their king, and that he had fulfilled his promises. You might have seen that phrase there, that the promises were fulfilled, and now it's a completion. This great task of over a decade is completed with the awesome presence of the Lord confirming what they had done. But in this opening statement, he says this phrase that is worth noting every time we ever see it when we come upon it. It's also back there in the books of Samuel where... Concerning the building of the temple, we know that David wanted to build the temple. It was, it was in his heart to build the temple. We saw that as we even finished up 1 Chronicles. But God forbid him to build the temple. Now, God did explain to him it's because he was a man of blood, and the man who built the temple had to be a man of peace, his son Solomon. So we got an explanation for it, which we don't always get when God says no. But he did not build the temple. But this phrase comes forth where he says that the Lord said to his dad, this is, he's quoting what the Lord spoke to his dad. When God told his dad, no, for building the temple. Whereas it was in your heart to build the temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you're not going to build it, your son will. Now, if God says no to us for something that we have a good motive for, and it's a good work, and it seems like it's a, who wouldn't want to do this for the Lord? This looks like the right thing to do. I have the right motives to do it. And God says no, and that happens in life. We get no all the time. But when you think it's a really good thing to do, and it's you have the good the right motives to do it, it's kind of hard to get the no from the Lord. You know that that happens sometimes. Like it's in your heart and you're willing, and but the Lord says no, and and that will happen. It happened to David here. But God recognizes David's heart when He says this, and this is noteworthy because. So often, because we look with our eyes and listen with our ears, we only go by our senses and what we can see or experience. And it's like, but God looks at the heart. And so in the case of David, we already know when he chose him to be king, we know that God said through Samuel that to the first son of David, when when Samuel saw the first son of Jesse to be king, God said, not him, for the Lord looks at the heart. And David's heart is what always pleased the Lord. Even in his shortcomings, it was his heart that always found favor with the Lord. And now God's basically saying, I give you the credit for building the temple, if you will. And, of course, David planned for it and did provisions. But he's not going to build it. And God says, I give you the credit. And it would be easier to get the no if you know family's going to do it, right? You parents that have kids, you would know, like, hey, if God told you no and said your kids get to do it instead, most parents would feel pretty good about that, right? Just think this through. You'd feel... Good about that. But that's not always the case either. Like sometimes you might have gotten the no or you get a no and you feel like God chooses someone else. Like, why would they choose them? And there's a temptation to feel disappointed or jealous or whatever. But it's really noteworthy in this opening statement from Solomon that he reminds us that God looks at the heart and he gives credit for the heart, even when you don't even get to do it, that you it was in your heart to want to do it and God recognizes it and that's important because again there are times in life when it's in your heart to do something and it just doesn't happen I mean for me the most recent one was to go to Russia during 2020 because as you know I came back from Russia in November 2019 began to learn Russian I got the right visa to actually preach in Russia it was all in play I, I did my Russian language out for 16 months straight during when COVID began. I kept thinking, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. And it dragged out and it dragged out. And I was like, no, hang in there. Keep working on your Russian. Keep in touch with the Russian churches. Keep the vision. Keep the fire strong. And I did. And then in 2021, by the time we got to the spring of 2021, the Lord said, let it go. And I, a very similar sense, I felt the Lord said, hey, it was in your heart, Joey. You wanted to do it. You, you know, you worked on Duolingo, every day for 16 months you sent money to these people you called them, you emailed them you texted them, it was, it was in your heart to really support the Calvary movement and even beyond that in Russia to go back to Siberia, it was in your heart to go back and see David Markey in Siberia who's no longer there anymore because of the war they left Russia see God knows so much more than we do but it was, it was I guess the first time in a long time because when he when it was in my heart to do Olympic surfing and God said let it go I was like that was easy I'm like, I'm, that's fine. We were, I'm, I shake hands on that one. I'm in agreement. But when he said let go of Russia, that was harder. I was like, wow, like I feel like I wasted 16 months. Sometimes it happens. You know, in the book of Acts, when they were choosing the 12th apostle to replace Judas, they cast lots. So that's like a coin flip before the football game. Here it comes, the coin flip. Because there's only two, Matthias and Justice, were the two candidates. Think about this. The 11 apostles and the church leadership gathered, and they said, we need a 12th apostle, and we're going to pick one right now. And Solomon himself would say in the Proverbs that the lot belongs to the Lord. So casting lots is like flipping a coin. And at that point in time, it wasn't Pentecost yet. They felt it was important to have the 12th apostle replacing Judas. And so they said, the Lord said, let another take his office. Peter quotes the scripture from the Old Testament, and they put forth two people. They flip the coin, and it falls to Matthias, and justice is out. So I'm just thinking about this. Like, that would be a pretty awkward moment. Like the coin flip, and like you're like you're gonna be the you're gonna be the 12th apostle, or you're the loser. And everyone knows a lot belongs to the Lord. So when the lot doesn't go for you, it's like, wow. Like, can you imagine the next fellowship gathering? Like, no one wants to make eye contact with them. Maybe like, dude, bummer, you lost the lot for being an apostle. You know, like, just think we're human. They're human. We're all human here. Like this, this how you, you could feel wrong about that. But how we handle things like that reveals a lot about us, too, because his heart was in a good place or he wouldn't have been considered. And what I like about that story is you never hear the name Matthias again in the Bible. You do hear of the apostles collectively, so he's one of them. But you do hear of, of justice again, because in all that controversy in Acts 15 when they determined clearly and emphatically that the good news of Jesus Christ was for everybody, not just Jews, not just half-Jews like Samaritans, but for all nations, and they really wrestled with this about being saved by grace and that all people can be saved whether they knew the Old Testament or not. Whatever bad life they lived, they could find salvation in the Lord. It was a big deal, and all the leadership had come to Jerusalem and when it was all said and done, they clarified the gospel, they wrote a letter And they said, this letter needs to be delivered to the churches that were just established by Paul and Barnabas in their first journey. Now, Barnabas chose to go back to Cyprus. He had a different plan, so he still had Paul. They replaced Barnabas with Silas. So now you, like, just picture a ministry team like, wow, Barnabas is out. And they bring in Silas. So he's new to the team. Paul chooses Silas. And then they choose Barsabas the one who lost the lot to be an apostle. They chose him to represent all the apostles and the leadership in Jerusalem to travel with Paul and Silas, the new dream team for the church, and go and visit the churches and tell them that the gospel of grace is for everybody. I share that story because it's important. Because I can only imagine how disappointed he was when he lost the lot and the coin flip, if you will, to be an apostle, and yet there he is, on what is arguably maybe one of the most important journeys ever undertaken by the church. Because Acts 1-8 is to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the final expansion of the gospel was to the nations. And he's an ambassador with this letter from on behalf of all the apostles to make that clear in all the churches that this is the way it is, the gospel of grace. Isn't that cool? And I just think it's a really neat story how he lost the coin flip here But he passed that test with the Lord, and years later, there he is faithful in Jerusalem, and they pick him to be with Paul and Silas to let everyone in the world know that we're saved by grace and that through faith, not of works. I think it's cool. And we're told that the Lord closes the door that no man can open, and he opens the door that no man can close. And so in our own lives, especially with things that have look good and have good motives, when the Lord closes the door, we just got to let the Lord do that. And just keep our heart in a good place and say, all right, I'm not the apostle. All right, I'm not going to build the temple. All right, I don't get to go back to Russia. All right, the, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to Bible college. I'm not going to do this. Like, and that's okay. The key is the heart because the Lord looks at the heart. And Solomon said it best concerning his dad that the Lord said to him, and that was in your heart, it's reckoned to your account. It's a good way to handle disappointment. With the Lord is keep the heart in a good place and say, Lord, you know what's best, and we'll receive that being reckoned to our account. Because it's not so much what we do, but why we do it. And the Lord searches all people in all hearts, and He knows, He knows the why. So if we keep a heart in a good place with the right why, we'll be fine with is His confirmed what or not His what. The why is always more important. Than the what? Because some people do the right things with the wrong motives. And sometimes, unfortunately, we do the wrong thing, but we have the right motives. And as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, I'd much rather do the wrong thing with the right motives than otherwise, because my heart's in a good place if my motives are right. And David's motives were in the right place. And here in this speech, Solomon begins his great speech in prayer, reminding us again that his dad... This is the fulfillment 11 years after stepping to eternity of what his dad dreamed to see. And his dad's not there to see it, but it was reckoned to his account before he even stepped into eternity because his heart was in a good place. Now we read on and we get to Solomon's prayer. Verse 12. We're going to read this whole first part of the prayer. It's going to take us to verse 31, so stay tight and focus. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it, knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with all your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you. That your eyes may be opened toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may, and may you hear the supplications of your servant and of all your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place when you hear, forgive. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. And judge your servants bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head. And justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness." Or, if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and return and confess your name, and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land which you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, when they pray toward this place, confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk. And send rain on your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. Give everyone according to all of his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways so long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. This is the, the main core of his prayer. And you can see if you look for the words, reading through it right away, you'll see forgiveness, confession, chastening. Well, You'll see sin, chastening, confession, forgiveness, and teachability. Let me say that again. Just in general, reading through these different scenarios he gave, you'll see sin, confession, sin, chastening, confession, forgiveness, and teachability. Those are all there that we all sin is without a question for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all sin is coming up in just a few verses in this chapter just a minute, the Old Testament version of Romans 3.23. We all sin. And isn't it interesting that the, the place of worship for them is really a place of restoration with the Lord. In their sense, it really was. They had the animal sacrifices with the blood and the animals for substitution, the killing place outside on the bronze altar. And they would be reminded every time that there's a sin issue, they need to be forgiven, they need to acknowledge it, they need to confess it, make it right, and to be restored, and to go forward and actually learn. It says that they that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk, verse 27. That you may teach them the good way in which they should walk. So see, there's no going forward or breaking the sequence and cycle of sin if there's not confession, repentance, restoration, and being taught the good way in which we should go, right? Otherwise, you just have the same sequence and we go in circles. Kind of goes back to what we said earlier, God knows the heart. Attitude towards sin is a big deal, right? Because people that are repentant about sin, they're humble, they're broken, they acknowledge it, and they want to have victory over it, and they want to go forward. That's for me looking in the mirror, that's for you looking in the mirror. As it says, each one knows their own burden and their own grief. And I I think it's safe to say we all know our own burden and our own griefs and our own shortcomings. And we all know we need Jesus as our own personal Savior. And we all know that bad days happen and bad decisions happen. But the real thing about sin that I've learned in my own life, as well as observation of the human experience, brokenness over sin will generally keep us moving forward from sin. And I would much rather hang out with a broken sinner than a prideful, unrepentant sinner who goes to church and seems right. Can I get a witness on that? Yeah, yes and amen. Because someone who's really sincerely wrestling with sin to get victory over that sin, see, some sins are delivered right away, right? When you come to the Lord, you know, for me, it was definitely smoking weed. Like, when I, when I truly got serious with Christ, I smoked pot every day for pretty much about seven years off or on. It, it profoundly affected my surfing career in a negative way. I often wonder, like, what would it have been like if I hadn't been stoned, right? You know, like, it's a good question to ask yourself, but... Um, but I do know it was like when I wasn't stoned. I became the most improved surfer in the world and finished top 10 in the world and won the Pipe Masters. So I do have a sampling of what that was like. But God went on. When I got saved and gave my life to Christ, there was never, ever again temptation to smoke weed, ever. In your life, maybe it's similar. If you gave your life to Christ, there are certain things he takes right away. And like, wow, that's amazing. There's total victory. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. But then you know, there's things he leaves around, like the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. In other words, those neighbors, those things that are like, hey, well, let's see how faithful you are. And, you know, as the Bible says, anyone thinks they've arrived, take heed lest you fall, right? <laughs> First Corinthians. If anyone thinks they stand, take heed lest they fall. Because, like, pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. So the dangerous thing is to think like, oh, I would never fall into that. I couldn't sin. I wouldn't do this or that or whatever. It's like, man, to live in fear of sin is a wise thing. And to recognize our struggles with sin is a wise thing because it makes us desperate for Jesus as our Savior for forgiveness and our strength for victory. And some things it gives it to us right away, the victory. And some things like, no, nah, we're just going to leave this around so you can prove to me you're obedient. Because there has to be an alternative. We're not robots. Love has a choice. In the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life, there has to be a choice. The Tree of Life, the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. We are self-determined. There has to be a choice. There has to be a choice. And so there's some things we get immediate deliverance on. There's, some, there's nothing that we can't be delivered from. Let's make that very clear. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. But it's just the pride and the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh that is the battle. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels so we always have that battle. So as it says in Romans 8, we have to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. For he who sets his mind on the things of the Spirit pursues the things of the Spirit and has peace and life. But to be carnally minded is enmity with God. And so like you just check yourself. Like, well, as it says in Proverbs, as a man thinketh, so he becomes. As a woman thinketh, so she becomes. So if a woman thinketh righteous thoughts and holy thoughts, whatever things are true, just, noble, and praiseworthy, think upon these things, that woman's going to have a pretty good day, as is the man. But when sin is knocking at the door, as it says in James, and it, it takes hold, and it's like conception. It's like conception. And he literally describes like a baby being born in the book of James, that it, it, it's growing, it's, and then all of a sudden it brings forth and it happens. See, when you have a radical collapse with sin, like a total like meltdown. We're like you say, I never saw that coming. It didn't just happen. It, it was it was, you know, it was it was there. It, it was there. So fear sin, flee from sin, and fight the good fight. My sister called me today, she was really upset. She's recovering from her knee surgery. So she's watching, she's the last person on planet Earth that has cable TV. And so she watches TV channels like Bonanza and, you know, Gunsmoke and stuff like that, right? I'm saying, like, all right, well, she's laid up for six weeks. I try and send her encouraging things. But she called me this morning all upset because before Bonanza came on today, evidently there was a disclaimer that some people might find this content offensive. I'm like... Well, whatever. And Barbie's like, I find things that Disney does offensive. I'm like, Barbie, Barbie, just just relax for a second here, okay? I go, Barbie, the worst thing to get upset over is something that you have no control over. Don't let upset you, right? Life's a battle. We can't we can't let things push our buttons. We can't let things pull us out of our lane. We need to proactively go after spiritual things and set our mind on spiritual things. So we don't let things like that upset us. We don't, we don't let people push our buttons. Hey, in my neighborhood, there's the neighbor on the street behind us. They, they, they somehow think the election's still going on from two years ago. They got flags flying. They got street signs going. And you walk to my neighborhood, it's like, well, they all coexist in the same neighborhood, you know. And when the wind's blowing, all those flags are flying, you know. And they're like, well, you know what are you going to do? I go, I don't let them upset me. I don't let them upset me. It's probably, the guy in the mirror is my biggest problem right now. He can cause me a lot of trouble. So I got to keep you, you, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. Keep you in check. Set your mind on spiritual things, right? And fear sin and recognize sin and and deal with it. And, you know, the people that love you, that try and correct you, if they have a good track record of being right, you should really receive it when they try and correct you. Sam Coca will say things to me like, randomly. And he, he's pretty wise. He's pretty shrewd, you know, uh, how he presents things. But he'll present a thought or an idea about a study or a feedback or something. And he, and he doesn't say, he, he's smooth. But he's trying to help me. Sometimes I go like, did you know you said this word instead of that word? I'm like, did I really? I don't believe it, you know. Then I go home watch YouTube. Hey, Sam, can you edit that and get that out of there? You know, <laughs> right? We need people like that to say, you might want to edit that or not say that on Saturday. Right, that's what our spouses are for when we're married. That's what the Word of God is for. You, you just, we want, we want to be correctable early on before things really take root and get strong, and and, if, and things run a, a bad course. So, the whole the whole core of this prayer right here deals with sin, chastening, confession forgiveness and correction we need to learn from our mistakes we need to learn from our mistakes all of us myself as the pastor of this church you know, i need to learn from my mistakes we don't want to repeat them we want to fear sin and grow and go forward all right uh now also in this passage there's another thing that jumps out at us is verse 22 Now, it talks about sinning before the Lord. Almost all of it's like we sin before the Lord, we sin before the Lord, we sin before the Lord. But this one says, if anyone sins against his neighbor, so this is not. Now, all sin is before the Lord. David in Psalm 51 said, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned, right? So it all starts with the Lord, but our sins affect other people. And we do things that hurt other people, sometimes by accident, sometimes maliciously and with intent. And here, stay with me, because we've covered kind of a prophetic word about what God said about David in his heart. We've covered doctrine about sin, confession, forgiveness, and restoration. All comes in Christ and going forward and not repeating it. But here we get another one of those powerful principles of the universe like gravity. Because, again, it's sowing and reaping. And you say, Joey, you talk a lot about sowing and reaping. I do because it's as important as breathing the air and understanding how gravity works. But it's spiritual. And of all that I've ever believed about sowing and reaping before I was 62, believe me, you, I believe a lot more now because I suddenly this year I had the epiphany of how it all works, the entire universe of sowing and reaping. So it says here, this is horizontal people to people. So think about interpersonal relationships now. It's it's parenthetical. Verse 23 is like uh, verse 22 is parenthetical. It's just, it's just kind of squeezed in there. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before the altar of the temple, then hear from heaven and act. Solomon's calling for justice on injustice. Act and judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his own way on his own head. Bringing his way on his own head. And justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So we'll apply it for women as well, that the Lord would bring retribution on the wicked by bringing her way on her head and justify her her righteousness by giving her according to her righteousness. Then, back here in the latter part, verse 31, it says, And forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. And we can say again, give to everyone according to her ways, whose heart you know. The great challenge of the human experience is forgiving one another as we're going through it, isn't it? That is the great challenge. Of the, we get beat up in the human experience. I mean, we get beat up in the human experience. And the great challenge is forgiving people. We say this fairly often. The one who dies forgiving dies winning. If You can get to, you know, assist, you know, independent living, assisted living, and memory care with a heart full of forgiveness toward other people. You'll do pretty good even if you don't know what day it is or who you are. But if you're bitter and you don't forgive... Man, it's a bad ending. Your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, and your 90s, it is a bad uppercase. You want to hit the uppercase on your laptop and you forget it's stuck in uppercase. all starts going caps. That's what it is. Bad ending uppercase. It's bad. And if you've ever seen it, it's bad. The time to forgive, the time to ignore, the time to let go is today, not tomorrow. And injustices happen in interpersonal relationships all the time in broken marriages in broken families adult siblings co-workers i mean proverbs is sometimes hard to read because from chapter 10 on it's essentially the evil man does this the good man does that and you read about the evil do they so slander and, and who can handle it And when the wicked are in power the city mourns like there's a lot of stuff there i don't like reading but it's all absolutely true it's so now we can't We're not called to accept responsibility for how someone else sows and reaps, but we are accountable for how we sow and reap. And this is why I just think it's just so important to remind ourselves how we treat other people. If we treat other people with respect and dignity and compassion and empathy, it will always come back to us that way. And if there's been an injustice, make that an offering to the Lord. No matter how long it may go on, make it an offering to the Lord and go from there. Recently, someone in the church shared with me how someone they were doing a job and it was committed that the the job was going to cost like twelve grand. It was extra to a job. They did the job and then they denied, saying that they wanted the job done that way and said we don't we don't you know we're not going to you. They're basically telling a person that you need to eat the twelve grand and they went back on their word. So the customer went back on their word and the person that did the work. But like, I can't, I have to pay this on my own because in the end, all these people know each other in this neighborhood and I work for all of them and I have to take this hit. But man, I'm really upset about it. And I said, this is what you do. Write up an invoice and put it in the offering box. I mean it. Write up the invoice like you did the job and make it an offering to the Lord. I can't give you tithe credit for it because Uncle Sam and Caesar don't work that way, but you'll get credit with the Lord. Just write, I said, literally write up an invoice for that amount and put it in that box, and I'll put it in the file in the in the church office. Make that an offering to the Lord. It hurts when someone just doesn't keep their word and it costs you 12 grand. And that's a that's a gut punch, no matter how much money you have. It happens. Pray with that man years ago here yeah, my partner ripped me off for $2 million. $2 million? I'm like, are you doing anything about it? Nah, he's like, life's too short to be in court for the next five years. My girls are 14 and 16. They They're here that night. And he goes, I don't want to wreck my, the last few years my daughters were living at home by fighting some guy, some guy that I once loved and worked with in court for the next five years. And the lawyers going to get all the money anyways. It's better just let it go. Plus the Lord made me a millionaire once, he'll make me a millionaire again. Other than I learned how to do it the first time, they already know how to do it. He literally pointed to his daughters right here, right here, right there, and said, Why would I go to court for five years and have all that stress? It's better just to let it go and just let the Lord do it. Isn't that true, WG? Now it's easy for us to say because we didn't get burned for two million. Right? Still, though, like it's everything's of the Lord. The world has far more takers than givers. So just make sure you're a giver and a forgiver, and it'll all go well. Yeah, it's like. In this prayer, Solomon says it's to their own detriment and they only hurt themselves. That's what he says. He says that it, exactly what they do comes on them. And when I, I've had two negative experiences this year by others perpetrated against my family or me. One was our, our, we had the blue Genesis and someone just keyed all over it, the whole car. We don't know why. We don't know, like, did I, I you know. Since I'm the guy who went to driving school this year, maybe I did something to upset somebody, it's hard to disappear as a blue car versus a white car or a black car. But got up on a Sunday morning, I walked out of the car, like the whole thing was just keyed, all over the car, just keyed. And I was like, well, I have two choices right now. I can give this to the Lord or let it wreck my Sunday. And Jennifer and I are going on a walk right now on the bike path, and it might take me a moment or two, but I have too much to live for this day with my wife, and they let this wreck me. Plus, we'll just call Luke Hyundai Boy and ask him what to do with it because we get our cars through Luke as Hyundai, right? And Genesis is owned by Hyundai. But I actually, you know, I got, I got over it pretty quickly. I mean, that will affect your Sunday morning cup of coffee. But I did get over it, and I thought, you know, the real issue here is it doesn't hurt me. It hurts the person that did this. You can't do that and not have that go against you in the scales of justice in time, space, and matter. You, that person literally just keyed themselves. They might as well go on like this to their car, because ultimately it's going to come back on them. That's exactly how it works. When my dad had a $7,500 check stolen in the mail between Huntington P.O. Box and Cincinnati P.O. Box, it was quite upsetting. You know, like, we think the payment was made, and then two months later, like, well, no, the check was cashed, And then you, know, and you, and you go see the back of the signature, like, oh, gosh, fraud, someone stole the check. And, you know, it took a couple months straightening it out with Navy Federal. Actually, it was kind of a hassle, too. It took a while, but they were apologetic. It all worked out, but, like... You know, you steal a $7,500 check and you, put, you steal that money, you're not getting away with anything. The book of Proverbs makes it very clear. You're not getting away with anything. You will pay for it. There's no get out of jail for that one. But if I get bitter over it and resentful over it, then I'm hurting me. And I'm hurting the people I love. I got to forgive and let that go. I had to go to Navy Federal a few times, I'm like, here we go again, another Tuesday. You get anxiety, you know, when you're doing this. If you have ever done with this fraud stuff, and some of you have, you don't need to raise your hands. It creates stress. The night before, like, ah, i got to go to Navy Federal tomorrow. Like, oh, you know, these things create stress. But, like, ultimately, whoever stole that money from my dad, it was through a bank, and Navy Federal was going to fight the bank to get the money back. This, you know, this goes on all over the country every day by the millions, actually. But, like, you don't get away with it. I go back to the story. I stole the bike with David Barr. A day later, someone stole my favorite surfboard. Huh? I'm like 13 years old. I go like, hey. <laughs> hey, Larry, hey, Mo. <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> you know in Curly and Three Studios, hey, Larry, hey, Mo. Like, you older people get it. You know, it's, ah. Uh, just don't, don't avenge yourself. Let the Lord take care of it. And just know, don't be the perpetrator, because as Jesus said, in the measure you judge, you'll be judged. In the measure you condemn, you'll be condemned. In the measure you slander, you'll be slandered. So squeaky clean, tight with the Lord. Now we read on. Now he says in verse 32, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward the city which you've chosen and the temple which I've built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity saying, we've sinned, we've done wrong, and have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive, and pray toward, toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you've chosen, of course he's talking about Jerusalem, and toward the temple which I built for your name, then hear from heaven in your, your dwelling place their prayer, their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you in the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. And this last little uh, exhortation statement he's making when he says you're anointed most likely implies him like lord don't turn your face away from me because he of course is the anointed he's the king of israel and so here in verses 32 through 42 we get the back end of the prayer and this final statement that he makes and of course he points out that for the gentiles the foreigners that would come that they could come and hear the truth and god totally flipped this in the new covenant right where the truth goes out from jerusalem before in the Mosaic Covenant, the world came to Jerusalem to find truth, but with the church, we take out the good news, and that, of course, is the Great Commission. I want to draw your attention, though, to verse 35, where he says this phrase. Um, when it's, they've lost their battles and these things are going bad, then hear from heaven their prayer their supplication and maintain their cause. Now, the context is being taken away into captivity. Overall, this latter part of the prayer, he talks about the captivity which would bring up stories like Daniel in Babylon or Esther in the Medo-Persian Empire when, you know, Haman's trying to kill all the Jews and Esther saves her people. God maintained her cause and the cause of the people. When Daniel was there in Babylon and everyone's going to be executed and all things are going to happen, God reveals the, the dream and the understanding of the dream to Daniel and God preserved his people. God used Jeremiah to write the letter, the book of Jeremiah, and write the letter to Daniel and the captives that were taken away to Babylon to, to know they'll be there 70 years to plant gardens, have families, live a good life, and the Lord will bring you back. He's going to bring a future generation back. That's really the context of maintaining the cause. But it does leave us with a, an encouraging thought tonight before we go our way on this last point of application that God would maintain their cause. Know this. The Lord Jesus Christ will always maintain his cause for his church because he loves his church. His church is the bride. His truth will always be truth. His promises will always be yes and amen. He said, he promised to the church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. There is no situation that ever comes our way of prosperity or adversity that the Lord is not there to watch over us, keep us, and bring us through it. He is faithful in the highest mountaintop, and he's faithful in the deepest valley. He's faithful in the midday sun, and he's faithful in the dark of the night, in the darkest part of the night. That anything that life can bring us, you, we need to know as disciples of Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to heaven, he's got the power, and he's for us, and he will maintain our cause. So we kind of go back to the injustices of what people do to one another and realizing that we can cast our cares upon the Lord and know that he cares for us. Jesus himself said, come to him all of us who are heavy laden and cast our cares upon him for he cares for us and his burden is light and his yoke is easy. He's for us. And so when you feel like, Lord, you even know I'm here? When we're going through those experiences like the two footprints in the sand like, you know, there's two, there's only one set of footprints and and the person goes like, hey, you know, like I was all alone, and the Lord's like, well, I carried you during this time, and it's it's a fictitious analogy or word picture, but it's a good one because the Lord does carry us. Paul in 2 Corinthians said that they went through life experiences in chapter 1 that they were perplexed beyond measure and despaired of their life. That's a powerful statement to think about. The Apostle Paul, perplexed beyond measure, they were absolutely clueless to what was going on, and they despaired of their life in this current generation we call that mental health issues if someone says they despair of their life they're going to be tagged for mental health issues paul said they're just overwhelmed but then he'd write in a couple chapters later these light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that's to come and we just got a mental physical spiritual we got to fight through them that's the good fight we got to fight the good fight but the lord fights for us he's fighting our battles And so when Solomon says here that you would maintain their cause, I remind us tonight, when we give our life to Christ, the blood on the cross, the empty tomb, and the cloud of Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father, and all those promises that are yes and amen, we need to know, no matter what happens, that the Lord is is maintaining our cause. His presence, whether we feel like he's there or not, he is always there. As it even said in verse uh, 29, each one knows his own burden, and the Lord knows each one's own burden. He knows the hairs on our head. He maintains our cause. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is always with us. He's given us a spirit as confirmation for the glory to come. He is always, always with you, no matter how you might feel alone. Paul said, no one stood with me in my last trial, but the Lord will always stand with me. Whatever we might face, he will always be with by our side to maintain his calling and purposes on our life he will maintain our cause with his presence he will maintain our cause with his protection nothing happens to us that god has not allowed to happen and doesn't have a greater plan and bigger purpose in it so we know it's not like his protecting like the protective shield went down like it's star trek and your shields are down you know his shield is always up for you and whatever comes through he's got a plan with it and it's a test of our faith and ultimately, he's going to maintain the purpose of our life until the last breath. His presence, his protection, his promises, and his purpose, it's going to always be that the Lord will always maintain your cause. So write the invoice up and put in the offering box. Forgive him, let it go. Just know he will always maintain your cause. We don't fear anything other than the Lord, and we look forward to the day of the Lord. Yes and amen. amen.